Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. The word of God speaks to us. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought at a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. This is God's word to us. All right, guys, good morning. You doing okay? All right, a lively 11 o'clock. I like it. Uh, we're going to have a good time today. I love uh, getting to be here at uh, Frontline South. It's um, honestly one of the, my favorite congregations to get to visit. I don't just say that because I'm here with you guys. Uh, I say that because I really do getting, uh, love getting to sing with you and hear you guys pray. Uh, I'm always like enriched on the front row hearing your voices wash over me. So it's a privilege to open God's word with you today. And I know that you're riveted by hearing that scripture reading, thinking circumcision was just named like nine times in that passage. I can't wait to see what we're going to talk about. Hey, God's word will shape us today. So if you please would pray for me, I'll pray for you and we'll get to work. Our God, we come to you in the strong name of Jesus. The only way that we can come to you and the only way that you hear us. And so we're confident now that you attend to us, not because our prayers are great, but because Jesus is great. Because of what he's done is great on our behalf. And so, Father, hear our prayer that what we don't understand, would you please help us to understand? That where we lack faith, would you supply faith? And where we lack love, would you supply love? God, there are all sorts of places in this room where I know that each individual needs to be addressed by you, and I'm I'm aware as I stand before my friends today that my sermon is insufficient to meet all the needs in the room. And so, would you fill up what's lacking, and would every person walk out today having encountered you in every way that you intend to encounter them? And so I offer this prayer, trusting that you're great and you know what to do with us today. In Jesus' name, and all, all the people said... Amen. Amen. 
Well, some people have um, talked about the book of 1 Corinthians uh, as an open letter of Q&A with the church at Corinth. And, and it sort of feels like that. If you've been with us in our study, we're here at chapter 7, and we've been in this book uh, since sometime after Easter last year. We're going to finish it up uh, over the course of this year. Uh, it feels a bit like that. Uh, uh, just up to chapter 7, here's what we've already talked about in our study. We've talked about issues of church division, spiritual entitlement. We've taken up matters of church discipline in regard to really gross sexual immorality. We've talked about lawsuits in the church. Everyone loved that sermon. We, we talked about a biblical vision for our bodies and sexuality, sexual intimacy within marriage. We've talked about issues of divorce and remarriage. Hey, the book of 1 Corinthians to this point has just been light and casual. It's just been sort of a walk in the park, things that you talk about at the water cooler. And to this point, in the, to this point and into our passage today, it also reminded me not just of an open letter of Q&A, but it also reminded me of the moments where I invite um, my little kids into the front seat of the car with me to run a quick errand. Uh, if you have little kids, you know what this is like. You, they sit in the front seat for the first time, and it's like they're in the cockpit of an airplane, right? Their eyes get big, and they're like, there's lights up here, and there's knobs and buttons and little air flappers that change the direction of the flow of air in the car. And they start wanting to touch all of this stuff, and they can't help themselves but just asking, well, what does this one do? And, and, and what does this one do? And, and how does this one work? And for a while, you're like, well, this one... This one turns the volume loud or soft, and so, so don't touch that one, okay? And then it's like, well, well, this one changes the air from hot to cold, and so we'll leave it just how I like it, okay? And then it's like, well, well this one, you know, uh, makes the lights blink behind us so that no one hits us, and we like when people use those because we really get mad when they don't, you know? So we want to use that appropriately. And then eventually they keep asking questions, and then it's like, hey, can you just chill, right? I'm done, kind of done answering your questions up here. Can you just enjoy the ride? with dad. And that's sort of what our passage is like today. It's sort of this invitation to come back to remembering your call to Jesus and simply being present with him wherever you find yourself in life. There's some people in the church at Corinth that had come to Jesus and they were so entangled with the world that even though they had come to Jesus, their life had hardly changed. And there were other people in the church in Corinth that had come to Jesus, and they're now wondering what all needs to change, and they're even getting, getting busy changing the things that Paul's even going to say, hey, that actually doesn't need to change. And so, for example, just here in chapter 7, Andrew reintroduced the book last week, but there were some people who were married couples that were assuming, well, because we live in Corinth, which is a city that's so run over with sexual perversion, maybe the better and more spiritual thing for us to do would be to abstain from having sex altogether, even with our spouse. And there were some that were thinking, well, maybe it's better to separate from my spouse so I can have a more undivided devotion to Jesus. And there were others who were thinking, well, maybe I should leave my marriage altogether because since coming to Jesus, I was married before, but now I've come to Jesus, and my spouse hasn't come to Jesus, so maybe we shouldn't be married anymore because I'm with Jesus and they're not, and so that, that's not going to work. Maybe I should leave my marriage. And then there, in the passage following this, there were some who were saying, well, I'm not married, but I have passions to be married. Is it okay for me to desire to want to be married? And there were others who were saying, well, I don't desire to be married at all. Is that okay? And then there were some widows who were saying, can I get remarried, please? That's all happening just in this context of chapter 7. And then sandwiched in the middle of all of that discussion around sex and marriage and divorce and remarriage and singleness, sandwiched in the middle of that is our little passage this morning where Paul is coming to the church then and to us today like a dad 
who were in the front seat of the car with him, with all the buttons and knobs and air flappers of discipleship to Jesus. And he's trying to bring us back to a stability, the restlessness that we carry oftentimes in our discipleship to say, hey, remember your calling to Jesus. It came to you in the middle of the real circumstances in your life. And it's right in the real circumstances of your life that you're supposed to be present with Jesus. That was true for them. It's true for us. And notice first, Paul's going to give us a rule to live by. The way this passage opens is Paul is going to give us a rule to live by. This should guide the principle of which you follow Jesus anywhere that you are. Notice in 17. He says, let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him. Let each person live the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And he says, this is my rule. This is my principle. This is the rubric for the discipleship that I apply to all churches, he says. So Paul says to this church, in all your questions about marriage and divorce and remarriage and singleness, here's what I'm going to tell you. Stop worrying about how to change your situation and recognize that God has met you right where you are and he'll continue to meet you right where you are. Don't neglect what you can clearly know about your life right now, right where you are. And the two things he tells them and us that we can know about our life is number one, God has assigned you a life to live. God has assigned you a life to live. And the second thing, he has met you in that life and he'll continue to meet you in your life. Those are the two things he tells the church. You can know this 100% about your life and there's two big theological principles he's drawing this from. And the first is the sovereignty of God. Perk up here. He says, wherever you find yourself, however your life is, literally, right now, today, wherever you find yourself, God has assigned that to you. However your life is right now today, God has assigned that to you. So well, how do you know that? Well, because it's where you find yourself today. <laughs> That's how I know that. If, if it were to be different, well, then it would be different. But it's not different. It is the way that it is. And the sovereignty of God is over your life. It's been assigned to you, and we know that because it's what you have. He says, let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him. Now, a caveat here. He's not talking about if right now you're in a place of sin or rebellion against God or rejection against God, he's not talking about, well, that's been assigned to you, so just continue in that. He's not saying that, right? If you recognize your life is in rebellion against God, it's enough that you recognize that and you should turn toward Jesus, right? And continue in a life assigned to you that would glorify God. He's also not talking about if you're in harm's way, that if somehow you're in an abusive relationship or you're in a a spot that is very unhealthy. He's not saying, well, that's just been assigned to you, so stay in that abuse. He's not saying that either. He's saying the wealth of Scripture would suggest, hey, call out for help. Don't suffer in silence. And even as the pastors of this church, we want to help you get to a safe place. He's not saying you just got to stay in that because that's what God's assigned. He's not saying that. What he is talking about, though, is the more typical relationships, the more typical stages or places in life that we find ourselves Maybe the way to make sense of this, when I was a new Christian, I was like a senior in high school, and I had an older Christian at the time sort of explain the same principle to me this way. If you were to be somewhere else or have a different situation, then you would have it. But you don't. So that must mean that God intends to meet you right where you are and teach you how to follow Jesus right where you are. And if ever your situation should change, then that'll be clear 
but it'll never contradict God's word. That was the principle he gave to me. If your situation ever should change, it will never contradict God's word because he'll never lead you. It will never be from God if it's opposed to his scriptures, right? But the situation where you are and how things are must be from God because that's how they are. That was the principle. So the first thing God tells us about all of this and how we should obey Jesus deals with his sovereignty. The second is the call of God. He says in the passage, lead the life that God has called you to. A couple of things about this. The language of calling here isn't referring to a job or purpose in the world. Maybe you've heard someone say, I feel like God has called me to this. That's not the way he's using calling here. The word call is going to actually show up eight different times in this passage, and every time it shows up, it's referring to the call of your life and mine to follow Jesus, where God met us in salvation. What he's saying is this. If the salvation of God reached you in the real circumstances of your life, and it did, that's how you became a Christian. Stuff was happening. Your life was in upheaval. Your life was full of question. Or your life was carrying on fine, and the gospel of Jesus intersected you in the real stuff of life. He says, if that's how it happened, then that's also how you should carry on with Jesus in the real stuff of life. Whatever your circumstances are, carry on with Jesus. Maybe to say it a different way, following Jesus isn't something you start doing when things are different. It's always something that you do, however things are, wherever you are, in exactly the situation that you're in. That, that's Paul's point. It's maybe the easiest way, bottom line, if I can restate verse 17, this rule of life that he's given to us, it's this. Be a Christian where you are. That's what Paul's saying, real flat, real point. With all that it means to take up to be a Christian, to trust Jesus, to submit to Jesus, and to obey Jesus, wherever you are and whatever situation you're in, be a Christian right there, right now. And so you can see how this would have been applied to the questions of Corinth should I stay in my marriage or not? Paul's saying, quit asking that question. Stay in your marriage and be a Christian in your marriage. So the single people, should I stay single or should I get married or what? Hey, quit asking that question. If you're supposed to get married, the one will come along. But for right now, be a Christian in your singleness. Be a Christian in your singleness. Now, for you and me, let's translate this. The rule of life certainly applies to marriage and singleness, but it's also wider than that to every area of our life where we have tension. Notice the end of the verse, Paul says, this is actually my same rule to all the churches. And what he means by that is, what I'm telling you about marriage and singleness is what I would tell anybody, anywhere, in any situation. Follow Jesus exactly where you are and exactly how things are going for the moment. And so the big question of this burden is this. It's not so much, will you obey Jesus someday out there in the future when things are different, the burden of this rule of life is, will you say yes to Jesus right now, today, and exactly how things are? That's the burden of this rule of life. And listen, he's so serious and committed for you and me to pick up this seemingly simple rule of life that he's going to repeat it three different times in this passage. He says it in verse 17. He's going to say the same thing again in verse 20. And he says the same thing again in verse 24. So three times in seven verses, he repeats this rule of life. He's serious about you and I getting to it. And you're going, this is simple, preacher. You're not telling me anything I don't already know. Here's what's fascinating about it. I can't help but think that the reason he repeats this three times in seven verses is because it's so simple that you and I often just bypass it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I know I should follow Jesus right where I am, but we don't oftentimes. 
but we don't oftentimes. It's stuff we have in our head, but it's stuff that's bypassed our hearts. So how many times have you ever heard someone else say, maybe a better way to frame this, how many times have you said, or have you thought personally but didn't say it out loud, if I just had a different situation, then fill in the blank. Well, if I just had that person's job, well, the reason that they're so happy is because they have that, if I had that job, well, then you would have a different me. Well, if I could just live in the house that they had, if I could just have the bank account that they have. My wife and I recently were going through a neighborhood, a neighborhood that we really like, that we don't live in, and um, I passed a house, and I caught myself saying out loud what actually turns out both of us were thinking, but neither of us were brave enough to say out loud, but it just popped out of my mouth. I said, Man, if I could have that house, I would read my Bible every single day. <laughs> my prayer life would be fire. Our kids would be just frolicking in obedience and happiness. And, our, it, and my wife was like, hey, I was thinking the same thing, and that's super gross, right? Like, like as though, but we think this, right? If my spouse could just stop doing that thing then, if my spouse could just stop being altogether who they are, well then... If my kids would just, if I just had a different upbringing, if things that happened to me didn't happen to me, then I would be somehow different. If I just had an alternate life with a different spouse or different kids or lived somewhere else or had a different background or vocation, if I just had an alternate life altogether, if I could do it over again, I would. You see the line of thought here. And so here's, by bringing that up, there's actually nothing wrong with you thinking or having an impulse toward a different situation, sometimes you actually can't control that. So there's no fault in you thinking about an alternate life. Let me tell you where the fault does come, and this hits me in the chest. The fault comes when we think about an alternate life that we actually disengage from our present life, we disengage from our present situation, and we disengage from our present relationships with thoughtfulness and care because it's not what we want. That's where the fault comes. Who cares if what you have is not what you want? It's what you have. It's what you have. And according to what Paul's rule says, it's what God has assigned to you. It's what God has assigned to you, and it's where he intends to meet you. Let me drop this in a way that's maybe harder, but I think it gets really to the point Paul wants to drive at. Right now, in all the ways that you're trying to change your life or change your situation, Paul's wanting you to consider, what if your life right now is tailor-made by God in all your circumstances for you to encounter his very living presence? In all of your hurts, in all of your struggles, in all the things that you just want to go away but they don't seem to be going away, what if they're not going away right now because God doesn't want them to go away? And what if right now your life is tailor-made for you to encounter the very presence of the living God and it's tailor-made for you to be formed by him in all the ways he intends to form you? It's tailor-made. What if your circumstances are what they are because God wants them to be that way? For all your attempts to change them, you might be working against God. What if his, what if his greatest desire in your life isn't to change your situation, but it's to change you in your situation. That's what Paul's driving at. 
wherever you are, be a Christian. Even if it doesn't look like you want it to look, it's what you have. So get after Christ in the midst because God's there. He'll change you in the midst. Let me ask the question, maybe to move on to this point. If God doesn't change the situation that you want to change so badly, will you still follow him? Will you still follow him? That's the edge of the burden that Paul's giving in this rule of life. Now, where this passage moves next, he's going to give us two illustrations to drive this rule home. Two illustrations, and they're two illustrations that would have been fire in the first century. They're two illustrations that would have been so poignant in their moment, but they're two illustrations that, let's just say this, if they were my illustrations today and not in the Bible, you would probably go, hey, that's the last time you get to preach. You don't get to use those illustrations, but they're in the Bible. So my illustrations will be Paul's illustrations today, and the two illustrations he's going to use to drive this home is circumcision and slavery. (laughs) You know, when I think about obedience to Jesus, I often think about circumcision. That's where Paul goes. Pick up with me in verse 18. He says, Were any of you, at the time you were called, who became a Christian, were any of you already circumcised? And there would have been many Jewish men in the church who would go, Yes, I'm a good Jew. On the eighth day, I was circumcised. And so, yes, when I became a Christian, I was already circumcised, turns out. Paul goes, Okay, fine. Well, let him not seek to remove the marks of his circumcision. So all the Jewish men in the congregation breathe a sigh of relief. I don't have to have a surgical reversal of that situation. And then he asks a follow-up question. Was any of you at the time of your call uncircumcised? And all the Gentile, non-Jewish men go, that's me, still not. And they say, Paul says, well, good. You don't have to seek circumcision. They're going, wow, that's really good. I don't have to have a middle-life surgery in that situation. What's Paul driving at here? Well, lean in, because circumcision was an external sign of the covenant that God had made with Old Testament Israel that through their seed, through their line, would one day come the Messiah who would deliver them from their sins and restore them to God's presence. And so for males in the Old Testament, to take the sign of circumcision was this external sign that I believe in the promises of God and I've given myself to his purposes in the world. But now that Jesus has come, the promised Messiah has arrived, the old covenant has been fulfilled, and Jesus has established a new covenant for any who would look to him in faith. And so the new covenant is that God will be our God and that we will be his people, that he'll deliver us from our sins, he'll never leave us or forsake us, and he'll restore us to his presence. And that's available for any who would look to Jesus in faith, not just Jews, but anyone. And the sign of the new covenant, what is the sign? How do I know the new covenant's been established? Well, it's not a sign that we take. It's actually a sign that God gives the sign of the death of Jesus for sin and his resurrection from the dead. But the way that you know or that you can show that you've come under the new covenant is not by an external modification to your body, but it's by submitting to Jesus in faith and being formed by his commands. So carry out the rest of the illustration in verse 19. This is why Paul says, So circumcision doesn't count for anything, And neither does uncircumcision. But what counts is keeping the commands of God, obeying Jesus right where you are. That's why he repeats the rule in verse 20, each one should remain in the condition he was called. So here's his point. Applied back to the rule, does circumcision help you obey the commands of God? Rhetorical question. No. Right? (laughs) That's not a surgery that helps you obey the commands of God. 
The other side, does uncircumcision help you or keep you from obeying the commands of God? Well, rhetorical question, no. So then his point applies. You don't need an external modification. You don't need a change of situation to carry on as a follower of Jesus. You can just carry on wherever you find yourself. Maybe a punchier way to deliver the point of this is that your circumstances, and some of them I know that you don't want, but your circumstances don't keep you from obeying Jesus any more than uncircumcision would keep you from obeying Jesus. That's his point. And if obeying Jesus is the problem, if you're saying, well, if my circumstances, then I would obey Jesus more. If obeying Jesus is your problem, then it's not your circumstances. It's actually a rebellious heart that refuses to submit to God. That's what's happening. Circumcision wouldn't keep you from obeying Jesus, so your circumstances shouldn't either. You can obey Jesus wherever you are. And you might need to say, God, would you give me a new heart? Me too. Me too. So the reality is, on the great day when we stand before God, (laughs) he's not going to ask us whether or not we were circumcised. Like, that's not going to be the question. All to the left or to the right, right? He's not going to... But here's what he will care about. Did you look to Jesus and did you obey him in every stage of your life. That's what he will care about on the great day. You can do that right now. So here's the second illustration he gives us regarding this rule of life. It's applied to the issue of slavery. Pick up in 21. This is fitting. We're talking about this on MLK Sunday. Were you a bond servant when called? Well, don't be concerned about it, he says. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has been called in the Lord as a bondservant is actually a freed man in the Lord. And likewise, he who was called, he was free when he was called, is actually a bondservant of Christ. And so Paul's doing so many things with this illustration. But when you hear bondservant or slave, you got to know that this is not the same thing in their culture as chattel slavery or race-based slavery that was taking place in American and European history. This passage actually was horrifically used and misapplied by those in American history to support race-based slavery. That is not what this passage is talking about. Not at all. In fact, when the Bible is rightly understood, when the Bible is rightly applied, the Bible was the great motivating burden for the abolitionist movement and for Dr. King. And so some historians would estimate that nearly half of the Roman Empire were bond slaves. And nearly one-third of the population in Corinth where this was written were bond slaves. And so to be a bond slave, let's define what that was. In their moment, and in some cases to be a bond slave, would be to be a servant of a wealthy family, like a butler or a maid. But in most cases, you would sell yourself into bond slavery in order to pay off a debt or to pay off a debt for a crime. And so these slaves were actually educated. They were allowed to be educated. These slaves could own property. These slaves could eventually even buy back their freedom. But all of that to say what Paul's addressing is this was a job of low status, and you would have wanted to change this job if you could. You wanted a higher social standing. And so given the percentage of bond slaves that were in Corinth at the, Corinth at the time, surely when, when Paul wrote this letter, when this was read to the church at Corinth, there had been many in the room who'd become Christians and they found themselves currently in slavery. And so here's what Paul's saying. Being a slave doesn't keep you from being a Christian. You know that. And sure, you might want to move on, and if you have the chance to move on, take that. Yeah, that's a good thing. 
But don't you know that a slave who is a Christian is completely free? A slave who is a Christian is completely free and has high standing before the face of the Most High God. In fact, a slave who is in Christ is actually freer than a free man who is apart from God, and that will be revealed on the great day. But don't you also know that a free man who is a Christian is actually a slave to Christ? That's what Paul's getting at. And that's what the whole thing about being a Christian is. To become a Christian, you give over your rights to Jesus. To be a Christian, you give the prerogative of your life over to Jesus. The final say of who you are and what you do belongs to Jesus. When Jesus says jump, we say how high. That's what it is to call him Lord, to become a slave of Christ. And so back to the rule, he applies this. A change in circumstance or a change in situation shouldn't change your attachment to Jesus. You can be a Christian wherever you are and whatever state you find yourself in and whatever situation you find yourself in, what it means to be a Christian is actually to be a slave of Christ right now in your current situation. And the other thing that Paul's doing here that I think is beautiful to get to point out on this Sunday is an illustration of blowing up the categories, the way that the gospel actually blows up social categories. So they were in a world where slaves and freemen didn't associate with one another in public. And so Paul's highlighting the power of the gospel to bring people together who would never otherwise be together. In the congregation were slaves and free men, and the gospel did that. And they were together not because they had a change of situation, but because the death and resurrection of Jesus is a whole situation to itself that doesn't change our externals, but it changes our hearts and gives us new hearts to love people that we would never otherwise love on our own because our sin runs that deep. And when Jesus comes together with a new situation, skin colors aren't changed and they don't need to be because hearts are changed and we're brought together under the fatherhood of God. And so Galatians 3 says it this way. Don't you know that there's no Jew or Greek? Not that those things don't exist, but they're not the defining factor. Neither is there slave or free or male or female. Add to that black or white or Asian or Latino or anything else. Hey, all are one. The defining mark of us is no longer those things, but what Christ has done to make us one. You can obey Jesus now. And so Paul pulls this whole section together. Here's the big finish in verse 23 and 24. He says, guys, you got to know this. You were bought with a price. And so don't become slaves to men. So brothers, in whatever your condition, whatever your situation that you were called, remain there with God. If you've been tracking along, this is the second time Paul uses the phrase, you were bought with a price. And he's reminding us that the Lord has called us, and he has, the gospel has reached you in the middle of your very real circumstances in life. He's reminding us of that. And, and the reason that you've been called isn't because you came to God with a price to buy your freedom. You could never come to God with such a high price. But what's happening, the reason he's called you is because he's the one who's offered the price. He's the one who's brought the price to bear, and he's offered his own son and by his blood for your sin. And so he says, because of that, because you've been bought with a price, don't sell, don't sell yourself out to seeking status before men. Don't live your life trying to seek status before men and deciding whether or not you'll obey Jesus because it might be acceptable or unacceptable. Don't sell yourself out to status before men. You've been bought with a price. 
And don't sell yourself out to the wisdom of the world that would tell you that you can only be happy and you can only be fulfilled when your circumstances are just so. That's a lie. Don't buy the lie of the world and the wisdom of the world that you can only be fulfilled when all your circumstances are tailored just to your preferences. That's a lie. You've been bought with a price. Also, you've been bought with a price. Don't buy the lie that God is holding out on you just because your circumstances are hard. That's a lie. You've been bought with a price. The resolve is you don't need a new situation to be present with God. He's present with you right now. You might think you would enjoy God's presence if your situation was different more. But you don't need a new situation to be present with God. He's present with you right now. And you don't need things to change in order to be formed by Jesus. Well, you know, I'll let go of that sin in my life once this hard season is over. No, no, no. You can be formed by Jesus right now because he's present with you right now. And to get after him is the best decision you could make right now. And saying yes to Jesus is not a decision to be made when things are different. Because they might not be different. Saying yes to Jesus is a decision you make now. And if they're different, so be it. Praise be to God. If they're not, so be it. Praise be to God. He's assigned a life to you. And you can obey Jesus right there. I've got two questions I'll throw on the screen to kind of wrap us up and pray. Have you been delaying obedience to Jesus for a later time when things are different? Is there an area of your life where you're like putting off the high call of discipleship for what you imagine to be an easier time later? The passage would say, now is the time. Now is the time. The second question is this. Is there any place where you need to practice being present with God in the middle of your situation? (laughs) The answer is yes. I just don't know what that is for you. But is there a place where you need to practice being present with God in the middle of your situation? The truth is God's present with you. Are you practicing presence with him? Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. God, I want to say thank you in this room, having opened this word and looking out today. I want to say thank you, God, that every situation represented in this room you know intensely. You know every detail about our life. You know everything about our life that you intend to form. You know every detail about our life that we wish would go away. You know everything. There's not a single thing about us that catches you off guard or you're unfamiliar with. God, I thank you for that. I thank you that there's nothing about us that we have to inform you of. And so, God, I pray that today it's not about informing you. I pray that we would be informed that you're with us and you would show us what it is to obey Jesus right where we are, right in the midst of whatever you've assigned to us. Help us today to confess what Christians across the globe have confessed since the resurrection. Jesus is Lord. He gets the say on my life. 
And I pray this in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen.